Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about food insecurity around the world. We're going to be talking about an update to the Buffalo shooting and Biden stating he'd intervene militarily if China invaded Taiwan. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So, monkeypox cases have been popping up in numerous countries around the world, and you're already starting to see some countries impose quarantines, mandatory quarantines. We'll see if this is a COVID uh, repeated all over again in 2022, and we'll see if it isn't. I'm hoping it's not. Uh, at least here in the United States. We've had certain rulings from the Supreme Court and numerous uh, smaller jurisdiction courts. We have numerous circuits. I believe there's 13 of them. So we've had numerous judges ranging from state level to circuit level to the Supreme Court level that have basically stated outright that the COVID policies that we pursued during 2020 were unconstitutional. So at the very least here, we shouldn't see nationwide lockdowns again but we probably will see some degree of quarantine depending on how many cases we get here but from what i've from what i've been able to gather this virus is not that deadly and just like covid although it will be interesting to see how the news treats it because covid wasn't that deadly but the news treated it like it was the end of the world and we responded to it that way as well so we'll see how this gets treated with this pretty mild mortality rate. Again, we're really lucky. Again, We could just get smacked in the face with the Black Death again, but we're getting smacked in the face with these lightweight diseases. So, thanks, I guess. It's a shame that we have to deal with them, but if we have to deal with them, we may as well take the, the weaker versions of viruses that we could be getting. So... Monkeypox. I've seen pictures of it. It's, yeah, I wouldn't want it, but it does remind me of mustard gas. And you know, uh, looking at pictures of people with monkeypox, and it reminded me of pictures of people who had been hit with mustard gas when their skin was exposed to it. It's just an, it's just nasty. It's, it's not lethal, thankfully, or at least most the strain we're dealing with is not. There's a strain in Congo, I think, that has like a 10% mortality rate. That one could be a, a, a real killer if it makes its way out. Or we could get some immunity, maybe. Who knows? But just interesting to see the comparison between that and uh, mustard gas. I know that wasn't exactly the, the first thing on people's minds when they think of monkeypox. But uh, you're probably thinking more along the lines of chickenpox. But yeah, that was what I noticed when I saw it for the first time. But yeah, I would not want that. I, w- I really wouldn't. But again, at least it's not lethal, not super lethal. And hopefully it stays that way. You know, I, I'm going to 
stop talking about how not lethal it is before I go out and jinx myself and get and catch that 10% mortality strain on myself. Although there is reports that it spreads primarily through gay intercourse. Mm-hmm. Gay intercourse. Now, I myself being a straight man, I'm quite relieved at news like that. But we'll see. We'll really see. Anyway. <laughs> it's like a dive off a weird end over there. But uh, in other news, the U.S. has received baby formula, a baby formula shipment from Germany. Now, well, it's good. You know, it's good. That was one of the main detractions that people in Congress were making against giving Ukraine all that money was that we're giving them all this money and we don't have formula here at home. And you had senators who thought it was a brighter idea to continue trying to fight a proxy war instead of trying to resolve supply chain issues here. Again, I'm referring to Dan Crenshaw and that. So I guess he's not exactly on the favorable list of congressmen here, but then again, there aren't that many who are. But yes, it's a good thing we're getting this baby formula from Germany. But let's be honest with ourselves. The fact that we even need to do this, that we're we're having supplies shipped into the United States, baby formula of all things, the fact that we have to do this is just shameful. It's just shameful. We should be able to manufacture baby formula. There's there's no excuse. There's no excuse for this. Like, we should be able to manufacture something so basic as baby formula. There's no excuse. Look, how how are we supposed? There's a whole lot of people who say that we're the superpower, so we have to do this, 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 and this. Well, how are we going to be doing that if we can't manufacture baby formula? You, you want to go fight a cold war with China? You want to go fight a proxy war with Russia? We're not even manufacturing baby formula. Like, is this where we're at? And you and you want to go fight a cold war? Yeah. It's shameful, very very shameful. Uh, but on the other side of the world, uh, uh, shameful for Ukrainians and great for the Russians. Azovstal has fallen following the surrender of over nine hundred Ukrainian soldiers, thus ending the siege of Mariupol as a whole. Uh, for those who don't know, Azovstal is a an industrial plant within Mariupol. The Russians held most of Mariupol, and there was a small holdout in that industrial zone within Mariupol. That industrial zone was called Azovstal. That's where most of the Ukrainian soldiers who would, were still in Mariupol sort of retreated to to consolidate the line. And we reported a couple weeks back that they were running low on food and ammunition, and medical supplies, and you saw small handfuls of troops start to surrender. Now the whole, the whole damn thing has surrendered, which has given Russia total control over the south. Now many were saying that this, the, the fall of this city now gives them a land corridor, but they already had a land corridor before. It was just north of the city. The, the city's on the coast. It's as far south as you're going to be able to go. In Ukraine is the Black Sea. Russia held like a good, a solid multiple tens of miles, probably a good hundred miles. Uh, 
maybe not 100, I'd say like 50 at the very least. It's kind of hard to tell just looking at the map without, you know, accurate measurements. But they held a solid chunk of territory to the north of that, which is why the city was under siege in the first place and unable to be relieved by the Ukrainian army. The R Russia already had their land bridge, but now they have unchallenged control. They have uncontested control over the southeastern part of Ukraine now with the fall of Mariupol and Azovstal within Mariupol. So now, we're probably going to see, uh, well actually we already are, we already are seeing them, Russia ramp up pressure on the Ukrainian city of Kharkov, that's probably going to result in the city getting encircled, and then sieged down as well, and from there, you'll probably see, hmm, I actually, uh, Given the nature of this war, where the Russians sort of swallow whole cities and then just sit on them to digest for a little bit, we could either see Russia go for the encirclement of Kharkov, like we all thought that they were going to do in the early stages of the war. We could see them do it now, or we could see them put pressure on Kharkov while they're able to, you know, redeploy the troops that were sieging Mariupol further towards the west. And this is the southwest, mind you, where they have that land corridor running from Russia through the Donbass, past Crimea, past the Dnieper River. And they might go for that land corridor with Transnistria. They might go for it, which would effectively, if they have that land corridor, that would have the effect of putting Odessa under siege as well, because the Russian Navy is blockading the ports. So if there's no land connection between Odessa and the rest of what is functionally Ukraine right now, and the sea is under Russian control, having that land corridor that cuts them off puts Odessa under siege as well. And because they would only need to use the troops that they've reallocated from the siege of one city, they could put another city under siege just by marching. And the troops they have around Kharkov are the troops they have around Kharkov, and they're probably going to encircle that with just those alone. We might see two more sieges happen right before our eyes in the next couple of weeks. That combined with the destruction, the continuing destruction of the Ukrainian army in the Donbass itself, it's looking bad for the Ukrainians and looking it's increasingly better for the Russians. You know, it's easier to see the victory conditions now, or at the very least, the path to victory. And it's encirclements followed by sieges rather than swift victories. The Russian steamroller is back on the table, and the Russians are relearning why they loved it so much. Uh, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, that's Russia for you. Meanwhile, an update to Turkey's opposition to Finland and Sweden joining NATO... Uh, when they, I brought up that they were in opposition to those countries because they harbored terrorists. Turkey was referring to Finnish and Swedish support of the KPP. The KPP is a Kurdish militant group that uses terrorists, let's be honest, terrorists, and asymmetrical warfare tactics as a means of trying to achieve eventual statehood for Kurdistan. But since any Kurdish state would probably be carved 
all or in part out of Turkey's territory. Uh, and that those fighting tactics I mentioned are being used against Turkey and have killed Turkish citizens and soldiers. The Turks, like many other ethnic groups in the region where Kurdistan would theoretically be, the Turks don't like the Kurds very much. They they don't. So the fact that you have Sweden and Finland who aid and abet the KPP trying to join a military alliance that Turkey is in, well, Turkey is now using their influence to block Sweden and Finland. And maybe there'll be a concession where those two will stop supporting the KPP in order for Turkey to let them in. But there's no guarantee that Turkey's gonna that they're gonna not resume after getting in, because once they're in, they they're not gonna be kicked out, not by Turkey alone. So Turkey might just continue to block it. They might, they might, and we'll really see where this goes, because this is a very interesting moment in NATO history, and we'll see how the alliance responds to pretty stark division within it over its expansion, and we'll see whether it prioritizes the members it already has, or the members it wants, and we'll see what that does to the alliance as well. So that's Turkey. The G7 is set to provide even more aid to Ukraine. The U.S. has committed another $9.5 billion. The EU has committed $9 billion, and various private companies through uh, European banking institutions are set to provide another three billion uh, well at the very least it's nice to know that our supposed allies are they've decided to be just a little bit less useless this time around now nine and a half billion from the entire EU is not exactly 50 billion but I guess not everyone can be as silly with their money as the United States can be. Although, it would probably be more effective if Ukraine was getting weapons instead of just money for the sake of getting money. Like, what are they going to do with the money? Oh, they're going to fund, they're going to keep their, their country running and all their their government programs and institutions running? Well, okay, well they're but they're fighting a war, so where are the weapons? Oh, they're going to buy those? Well, well, how much have they bought? Oh, they're buying nothing. Oh, we're just giving it to them for free. Well, then why don't we just cut the chase and give them the weapons? Why are we giving them all this money? Just a thought. Just a thought. You know, I, I, I'll just leave that on the table. You know, someone's got... I wouldn't say someone's got to, but... I will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> uh, the Lebanese government has approved of an economic recovery plan. Uh, this is the outgoing government. There's been some elections that are going to be happening. Uh, so they're, they're on their way out, but they've agreed to an economic recovery plan. And the incoming government, uh, this is a parliamentary system, so a, a government means the specific group of people who are elected at any one time. Uh, not elected one time. The coalition that's in charge. There we go. Uh, the coalition is not. They no longer have the majority they need to be the governing coalition. So Lebanon's government is now changing. 
But before that coalition has uh, has finished leaving, they've approved this economic recovery plan. That should sort of make more sense than what I'm saying. (laughs) But, uh, so, it's been a while, but they, they got it done. They got it. Well, now we get to see what, whether or not it succeeds at bringing the economy back to life. Or if you get some relief in some sectors only to hurt other parts of the country. Kind of like what happened with us during the Great Depression. We had all these New Deal policies that made people feel good. It made people feel like the government was doing something, but it actually ended up prolonging the Depression. And all the intervention actually ended up creating a second depression within the Great Depression that was almost as bad as the initial dip. And then we spent the rest of the 30s sort of clawing our way back out of that. And it wasn't until World War II that the New Deal ended. And once business was allowed to do business, you know, there was plenty of three-letter and the alphabet agencies that were still left around that were still getting in the way, but not quite as much as the New Deal itself did. Once we got rid of the New Deal, business was able to do business, and we saw the economy finally recover. So, we might see this government intervention succeed, we might see it fail. All we can do is watch Lebanon, really. Russia, coming back to Russia, they've threatened to halt gas flows to Finland. We'll see if they follow through on this, as it would screw Finland over. Maybe it'll stop them from joining NATO, or maybe, you know, given the governments in charge who've already haphazardly abandoned Finland's neutrality policy, they'll just go for NATO anyway. Now, they have the fast track, but Turkey's in their way. Germany is currently set to provide 15 Jeopard. Jeopard? Uh, Jeopard with a G. Kind of like Leopard, but with a G-E instead of, you know, how Leopard is spelled. So they're going to provide 15 of these Jeopard anti-air tanks. Uh, So they're sort of self-propelled anti-aircraft guns. uh, Along with 60,000 rounds of ammo for them. Now... That sounds like a lot, but given the rate of fire, when, when you look at the rate of fire on a lot of these sorts of machines, it's not exactly as much as it would seem, but it's something, you know, Ukraine could definitely use some an- some air defense technology, because their air defenses were wiped out within the first 48 hours of the war. Russia's had total air superiority since then. This is something. And is probably going to be more effective than just giving billions of dollars to Ukraine. So at the very least, the Germans are still mildly efficient. But now, will they be able to replace those tanks with domestic production? And how long will that take? But, but, another thing that's popped up in my mind, looking at all this aid that's been given to Ukraine, specifically the weapons that have been given, not the money, just looking at the weapons, it's occurred to me that they're getting lots of different equipment from lots of different countries that require different parts and tools and equipment to repair and maintain. So that leaves me the question, how is Ukraine with how, how all this 
how is Ukraine going to maintain this? Like, again, they're getting all this equipment that's different equipment from different countries with different manufacturing processes, and they need different parts with different, and each part has different measurements, so you can't, like, it's hard to interchange parts between them, which makes maintenance even more expensive. How is Ukraine going to maintain this in the long term? If we're to assume that Ukraine's going to last into the long term, how are they going to maintain this? Are we going to have to send contractors to Ukraine too and supply them with the parts that they need to keep these these weapons up and running? Or are they just going to fall into disarray because they can't maintain them? What's going to happen? How are they going to maintain this? Because that's a legitimate question about logistics. Because Ukraine's not going to be producing the parts that they need for this. That they didn't manufacture these weapons to begin with. And many countries in the West outsourced their manufacturing capacity to East Asia, namely China. So are we going to manufacture the parts and pieces to for for the repairs for Ukraine? Or are these these vehicles and these these anti-air tanks, the javelin missile launchers, the air defense systems that we're probably sending over, the jets that we've sent over, are all those just going to end up sitting still and running ragged until they, they become literally a hazard to the person using them because they just can't properly maintain and repair them? That'll be interesting to see. I don't see that being talked about much, and it only dawned on me this week when I was looking at Germany giving them these tanks, and I'm like, wow, that's a very specific type of equipment and not a lot of ammunition to go with it. So, and that's another thing. Where are they going to get the ammunition? Because Germany has to make that. That's a, that's a German-made craft. No one else is making these specific types of anti-air tanks. This is a German-made machine. Germany has to supply Ukraine with the ammunition. They, they have to supply them with the parts to repair these tanks. So, does that make using these different weapons that they're getting from different countries hard when, you know, you try to use them at the same time in the same place? What happens if one gets damaged? Does that just take it out completely? Because you mixed in the American equipment with the German and French and Polish equipment? It's an interesting question. It's a very interesting thing to think about. And I'm not entirely sure if Ukraine's high command has, you know, thought about it. But maybe they have. But at the very, I think they're preoccupied with getting what they can still. Because... They're not going to be able to manufacture enough to fight back against Russia. Not with the major industries being actively stolen from them by the Russian invasion. So, that'll be interesting to look out for. And last but not least, Italy is now the biggest importer of Russian oil. And this is likely because they're not eating it up all by themselves. They're sending much of it to other European countries with Germany probably being at the top of that list. So, Pierce gas for rubles is a green light for success. And 
to sort of mitigate the PR loss that would come from the EU as a whole or even every individual member state just saying that the policy of sanctioning Russia has backfired. They've instead let Italy be the fall guy here for importing all this oil that's probably just going to get shipped around to every European country while the trade is being subsidized by the EU. Ah. But that's oil. But there's rumblings about rubles for wheat. We could be seeing something monumental happen right before our eyes. Particularly regarding food. But we'll get into food in just a moment. Alright, and we're back for the meat of the episode. And we're going to talk about some food. Or, should I say, a lack thereof. And we'll start this story by talking about uh, the UN. Which has appealed to Vladimir Putin to remove the blockade of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Which is where Ukraine usually, where they used to export their wheat. They're one of the world's biggest wheat exporters, along with Russia and the United States. But since the war, obviously, the Russian Navy, the Black Sea Fleet, has been blockading those ports and not allowing anything in or out. At least, nothing that isn't Russian. And this has naturally meant that Ukrainian wheat cannot get out of Ukraine through the the ports. They have to go elsewhere. And even then, you have some of the rail lines being blown up as we speak. Meaning, even even though you have rail lines that can go to other countries, the Black Sea ports were meant for the grain export. So when you cut that off, now you have to find other at this point, other countries to get that, to transport the wheat through to get it out to the wider market. There's talk of uh, the United States lifting sanctions on Belarus so that the wheat can go through Belarusian territory to get to the Baltic countries, where it hopefully leave through a port there. But that's a ma- that's a really long journey just to get to port as opposed to the Black Sea, and that would undoubtedly raise the price. So you're talking even more expensive food, as opposed to the usual route, which is going through those ports in the south. But the Russian Navy is blocking that. So now we have the UN appealing for Putin to remove the blockade. Uh, According to Secretary General of the UN, 36 countries count on Russia and Ukraine for more than half of their wheat imports. More than half. In India, the UK, Europe, Sri Lanka, and many other countries in Africa are suffering food shortages as well at the same time as this is happening. And, but going back to the UN, they're quite literally begging Russia to lift the blockade on Ukraine. They're begging. That's what's happening here. They're begging Russia to lift the blockade on Ukraine's black seaports so that that wheat... <laughs> I feel silly for going... <sighs> but I'm going to keep saying it like that because... Uh... They're begging Russia 
to lift the blockade of this wheat, but that's not going to happen. Yes, it'd be great for the wheat to make it to its end markets so that people can eat, but that's not going to happen. Because, again, what we what have we observed? What have we learned from the nature of this war? This is a siege war. This is siege warfare at the national scale. And what does that mean? Well, it means that when you put a country, a whole country, even the size of Ukraine, when you put them under siege, you have to commit to the siege. You can't put someone under siege and then lift it every two seconds and let food and supplies get in and out of that city. No, you have to commit to the siege. That means nothing gets in or out until the city, or in this case, the country in question, surrenders. So them lifting the blockade of these black seaports isn't going to happen because that would prolong the na- the nationwide siege of Ukraine for months. It would allow money and revenue to come in and out of the country, and that would be money and revenue spent resisting the Russian invasion. But if they keep the siege up, then that means no money and no weapons and no grain goes in or out, meaning that less ability is had by the Ukrainians to resist, which shortens the time frame of the siege rather than allowing it to be prolonged by having outside uh, assistance, be it intentional or unintentional, just through trade. This is a siege war, and Ukraine as a country is currently under siege right now. Russia's not going to lift that siege, and that's going to have consequences. It makes sense because they're at war, but that's going to have consequences to the people who depend on Ukrainian foodstuffs. Uh, Again, we have not just food, though. Uh, We have fuel prices, and I talk about the fuel prices going up a whole lot. But putting it in the specific context of food, it's... It's complicating farming in the United States, and this is going to harm our agriculture output as well. Prices, the gas prices, would they reached a national average of $4.60, just about. It was $4.59 a gallon, but rounding up, uh, which probably just makes it accurate for now because the price keeps rising. So you have a national average of $4.60 and 60 cents a gallon which is what we hit last week now for where i'm living that was the gas price about a week and a half ago four dollars and 60 cents but the heartland you know brings the average down the, at least some of us aren't being crushed but or crushed as badly uh, back when the rest of us were paying 260 270 and three dollars uh, the the heartland was paying two the some of them were even paying under under two dollars, but that, alas, that was when times were good. That was when we had the man, <laughs> the orange man. Now we have the demented man, and we have four and a half dollars a gallon, and that's assuming you're not in 
either California or New England. Because in New England, it's like six and a half. It's like six and a half in New England. That's the the northeast part of the United States. When you if you see New York State, everything to the northeast of that, that that's sort of New England. Uh, but six and a half dollars a gallon, and then it, it was already above seven in certain parts of California. So they're probably pushing like eight, nine dollars a gallon. Goodness. But when you take those rising fuel prices and put them in the perspective, uh, the context of farming, that is terrible because you combine that with fertilizer prices, uh, which are also up and rising as well. This means that food as a whole is going to be more expensive, not just in the United States, which is a breadbasket country. But for the whole world, because all the breadbasket nations of the world are using fertilizer. So if the cost of fertilizer goes up, then that automatically means the cost of the food is going to go up as well. But then you add in the gas prices. And why do I keep bringing up the gas prices? Well, modern farming is very mechanized. Very, very mechanized. Uh, I mean... There's a lot of machinery and vehicles that go into farming. So when you have these higher and higher gas prices, the tractors, the, the, the seed laying tractors, the, the, tra- the tractors that spray the water, yeah. all, all the tractors that plow the fields, although in most cases the, the plow and the seed layers are one and the same, but in certain parts they're different. That's a lot of gas that gets used, because these are some gas-guzzling vehicles. That, I mean, first of all, they're huge, so of course they're going to be. And then they need the more expensive type of fuels to just to run. So you're looking at prices because of the rising gas prices. That's going to reflect on the food, because gas is used to grow the food in mechanized farming, where you're, you're driving a big-ass tractor to plant and plow your fields. And to give them fertilizer, and to spray them with water, and to water them regularly. That's that's a lot of gas, and they have to do it. And it, the the cost adds up, and it's going to come out on the food. And you again, you add that gas price to the fertilizer prices. We're looking at in places that are going to get the food. First of all, the food's going to be a hell of a lot more expensive. But some places are just going to have to grow less food because it's too expensive to plant and take care of more crops because of the rise in expenses. And that means less food gets grown overall. Someone's going to go hungry. Someone is going to get the short end of this stick. And I know it's not going to be me. And I'm pretty sure that, that that's what every country is thinking who's looking at the situation with food. It ain't going to be me. I'm going to eat. And that other nigga's going <laughs> to... That, <laughs> that other guy <laughs> is going to have to pound sand because I'm not skipping my meal. I'm not skipping a meal for you. And that's where we might see conflict now i won't dive too much into food wars literal food wars but at the very least we're talking civil unrest in places that 
are having food shortages. People will tolerate a great many things, but not being able to eat ain't one of them. We may even see actual revolutions break out over this issue. It, it seems far-fetched, but that's just because we take food for granted. If you can't eat, well, something's got to go. Something's got to change. Someone's got to be held accountable for the fact that you can't eat. And usually that anger gets directed at people's governments. We could see actual revolutions. Um, we, we talked about revolution in Sri Lanka before. But, and again, that, that went back to them talking about they couldn't get food as well. So, if we're looking at potential revolution in Sri Lanka due to not being able to get food and economic depression, well, what happens if people can't get food and then we go into sort of a global recession due to conflict in Ukraine and Taiwan? Because I'm pretty sure Taiwan's next on the hit list here. So you combine food and fertilizer shortages and gas prices at all-time highs with, oh, the chip manufacturers just got shot up in a war. Looks like we're not getting the, we're not getting brand new shit today. Well, that, that there's your economic recession right there. And even if it's a mild one, mild economic recession with people being hungry doesn't go well, even if the conditions are mild. You're, we're looking at some pretty turbulent times. And, uh, and I say that because it doesn't look like it's going to be fixed soon. The, the Russians are taking their sweet time with this war. Now, they'll be the biggest winners of it all. Uh, not in land and resources and, well, the cost-benefit-risk-reward when you ratio and for the cost that they're putting into getting Ukraine, they're going to get a whole lot more out of it. But we're looking at food insecurity being the biggest danger to countries around the world. And this is largely as a result of one Ukraine and Russia going to war as they are two of the biggest wheat exporters, the biggest wheat exporters in the world. And two, Again, the rising fuel prices that make modern farming more expensive. Uh, I, I can't stress it enough. There's a lot of machinery and a lot of vehicles that go into farming these days. So if you make the gas more expensive, you make the food more expensive because it's more expensive to use the equipment that the farmers are using to plant and water and fertilize and to give you the food. <laughs> Not to mention to truck it across, say, the United States or Europe. Because that adds to the cost as well. And that's that's a lot. It adds up very quickly, and it's adding up to be a lot. And again, we could see that the rise in prices might make certain farmers cut back on how much they're planting, because they just can't afford to, to do it. Someone's going to go hungry Someone's going to get the short end of the stick, and someone who gets the short end of the stick might just try to take the better end of it from his neighbor. We could see some really ugly things happen as a result of this, which is why I've dedicated a whole segment in the podcast to it. This is, this is quite the global phenomenon that may have some pretty big consequences, but as big as anything else we've talked about in this 
podcast, food is important. Everybody has to eat. And people that can't eat don't appreciate it when the person next to them is eating. You get fights over that. We could see legitimate resource wars, except it's the most basic, one of the most basic resources of all, food. We were in, and here we were talking months ago about the potential for water wars. Who would have thought that at, in just a couple months into 2022, we'd be talking about the prospect of food wars, literal food wars. It's crazy how things change, and they change right before your very eyes. But that's why we watch it on this podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's food. That's food. Now we're going to get into another story about Biden promising to defend Taiwan. Oh, actually, before we do that, before we do that, I'm going to go over my the little update I have to the, the Buffalo shooting that I talked about last week. Because I learned a little bit more about the shooter in question. Because apparently, apparently this guy had a 180-page manifesto. 180 pages. You see, now, now, I, now I know the FBI had a hand in orchestrating this. You can't pay someone to write 20 pages if it was worth half their grade. But I'm expected to believe that this guy wrote 180 pages he wrote a whole book he he wrote Mein Kampf 2.0 I'm expected to believe that he he's that guy 180 pages yeah come on come on no, 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 no. on what on how he doesn't like black people and doesn't like Fox News like look look at what's in that manifesto now you're not you're not encouraged to look at what's in that manifesto but if you want to see where I'm coming from, you look at some of the, the weird, wacko stuff in that manifesto and really ask yourself, would this guy, who would actually write this? Like, seriously. Because if you're going to shoot up a, a grocery store, you're probably taking yourself at least a little bit seriously. You're not just going to go, oh, I want to shoot up a store today. No, you're going to, I, uh. There's, there's a process, there's a, a chain of events that leads up to that. So, in, keeping that in mind, look through this manifesto and go, hmm, at what point does he, where, where in this, I'm tripping over my words here, because it, it's just strange, the things that are in it. But really look at, look at it. Again, you're not you're not encouraged to do that from the people talking about it the, a lot. They they want you to believe he's just the worst person on earth, and while he is a scumbag, let's be honest about what this guy is. He didn't write no 180 pages, uh, especially about the things that you're gonna see in here. 180 pages on how you don't like black people in it. But, well, that that even <laughs> even the most hateful of clan members could probably get up to about what 10 to 20 pages if if he just wrote his heart out about how much he doesn't like black folk 
he's he's got 10 to 20 pages in him maybe 30 180 no 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 Nobody has 180 pages worth of hate for any one group in their heart. And also, when you look at the manifesto, he says that he was radicalized online. And it's stuff like that that really gives it away. Like, first, 180 pages. I keep going back to this because I really want you to... Really want to drive that home that we're supposed to believe that this guy wrote 180 pages. How long did it take you to write that 10-page essay? Double-spaced? How long did it take you to write that essay? Yeah? Would you write it? Would you be willing to make it 18 times longer? How long do you think that would take you? The whole school year? Mm-hmm. There are college theses, college theses, I'm going to say theses, that aren't even that long. So he wrote a whole college thesis on how he doesn't like certain people in the United States. 180 pages. 180 pages, people. I I can't drive that home enough. 180 pages? No. No. He didn't. He did. No. 180 pages. And he says in his own manifesto that he was radicalized online. But again, people don't just wake up one day and say, hmm, I'm going to write 180 pages on how I don't like black people, and then I'm going to go shoot up a grocery store and kill majority, most of the black people that I see. People don't wake up one day and just do that. There's, there's a, a course of events. There's a series of events that leads up to that. So... Looking at his manifesto, try to find points within that series of events. Hmm. Oh, this happened to him. So this is why he believes this. Oh, X happened. This is why he believes Y. If you look through his manifesto, you're you're not going to find that. Not really. I mean, sure, he was mentally unwell. But there are lots of mentally unwell people in the United States who don't shoot up grocery stores. So how did we get to this point? Now, I would be asking where where were his parents in this, but that's something else we're not encouraged to do because responsibility isn't something people like, even though that that's where we can stop these things with good parenting. But I'll leave that at that. But he says he was radicalized online. But this is his manifesto. And he clearly took it seriously enough to write eight, 180 pages. But if this is his manifesto and he was taking himself seriously enough to write 180 pages for this manifesto, why would he consider himself to be radical? Why would he, why would he believe himself to be the radical? This is his manifesto, not, not, uh, we would look at him as being radical. We'd look at him as being downright insane and despicable because, you know, we're sane and rational and he's mentally unfit and he just shot up a store. He's clearly the insane guy here. He's clearly the radical. We would view him as the radical, but Put yourself in his shoes, as as strange as that is to hear. 
someone who's not defending this shooter. Put yourself in the in the, the shoes of a shooter, I guess, for just a couple seconds, you know. Would you view yourself as being radical? Or would you view yourself as being sane and rational? It's all about perspective. We would view him as radical. He would not view himself as being radical. So why would he describe himself in his manifesto his 180-page manifesto, why would he describe himself as having been radicalized? In my view, he wouldn't. Unless it wasn't him who wrote it. Uh, again, my top suspect in this is the FBI. I believe, I believe wholeheartedly the FBI has the resources, time, and money, and... Well, they have a whole lot of time on their hands to be instigating fake kidnapping attempts on governors, but they're my top suspect in this. Right? I, I can believe all day that the FBI would write a 180-page uh, manifesto and plant it on somebody else and say that it was theirs, because if you're not the person committing the shooting, well... You you have plenty of room to work with. Oh, I was radicalized online. Oh, I did. Oh, I don't like uh, this news agency. Oh, oh, I I hate black people so much. And and they they from a third person perspective, you can get away with saying things like, oh, he, I was radicalized online. I I I don't like Fox News. But but if you're putting yourself in the first person. Again, it's all about perspective here. If you're in first person, you're, what is, you're not going to bring up Fox News in your 180-page manifesto. You're trying, to, you're trying to express your worldview here. You're talking about me. I'm talking about me here, not you. I'm talking about how I don't like these black folks. I'm talking about why I believe the things that I believe. I'm not radical. I'm... I'm the only reasonable person in the room here. So I have to do what I'm going to do to these specific group of people in the United States. Black people. That's how you would view yourself if you were this shooter and you were serious, you took yourself seriously enough to write a 180-page manifesto. That's how you would that's how you would operate. You wouldn't call yourself radical. You wouldn't Talk about things that didn't matter, like Fox News. Uh, that's just wild. I'm not. But if you're not the rat, if you're not the shooter, and you're writing the manifesto for him, like the FBI, well, then you can say all these things about having been radicalized online. Just, just some food for thought. That's sort of where I am on the subject here. It, the story doesn't make sense on its own. Yeah. Again, we're supposed to believe that the shooter did all this on his own. But, again, put yourself in his shoes. Are you going to write 180... <laughs> I, I, and I went with the assumption he, was ser he took himself seriously enough to write 180 pages. You put yourself in his shoes. 
Are you going to write 180 pages for your manifesto? If, if you were serious enough to write a manifesto at all, are you going to write 180 pages? Or are you going to be short and sweet and to the point? Maybe two to three pages. Ten at the most. It, and that's assuming you're, you were even going to write a manifesto at all and not just go out and shoot people and skip the manifesto entirely. Which would you do if you were in his shoes? That's a very, a very damning question, but we want perspective. We want to understand things like this. I have already proposed my solution, but getting to the, the root of this problem... Or at the very least, analyzing what we have before us. The, the root of the problem is uh, lack of good parenting. Because uh, we could have stopped this. And by we, I mean the people who surrounded him in his life could have prevented this with good parenting. I'll digress. But if we want to sort of analyze things like this as they happen... We can see sort of inconsistency, things that just don't make sense. And even for someone who is mentally unfit, they're not going to call themselves a radical. The, that, things like that can't be explained away by his mental unfitness. Right? Now, I, I've, I've put together what made sense for me, which is that the FBI did it. They're known to use people who are mentally disabled for these sorts of things. So I wouldn't put it past them to, to have done it this time as well. Again, for the purpose of giving an excuse to push gun control and sow racial divisions in the United States. Both of which are currently being pushed right now. Hmm. I wonder if I was right. Oh. We'll see in a couple months when some new piece of information about this pops up and we find out, oh, it was the FBI. <laughs> well, maybe it's a different group. Maybe it's a different group. Maybe it wasn't the FBI after all. That That's my suspicion. It just, the story as it is told and as we are expected to believe doesn't make sense on its own merits. And the inconsistencies in that story cannot be explained away by the man's Lack of mental facilities. There's there's too many plot holes in this story, so to speak. And I would like to get to the bottom of it so that we can have some sort of net response that we can build against crises like these, you know, societal responses, you know, because shooting people is something no one wants to do. And there are ways that we can avoid being in the situation where you would have to shoot him. You stop it in the home. These sorts of things have to be stopped in the home. We we didn't have to deal with this in the 1930s or the 1800s, right? People weren't just insane like this. Then again, we didn't have 300 million people, but situations like this got handled before they made the, its way out into the public back in the day so what society what what I, I keep saying society but what 
as a country, what sort of social fabric, what sort of social changes do we have to make for ourselves to mitigate and sort of deal with these problems before they become mass shootings? Because shooting them back can mitigate the losses, but how do you prevent the incident? Because that's going to take more than police. It's going to take even more than, you know, every man behind a blade of grass being armed to the teeth. How do you stop it? You stop it at the home. Good parenting. Ah. What the? We'll, we'll see. We'll see. It just, again, it just doesn't make sense to me the way the story is told. So, I've sort of dumped my suspicions onto you, and I'll let you make of it what you will. But that's the the shooter there. I just wanted to get that update off my chest while the story is still a little bit fresh. Because at, at this point, it's already dying off in, the, in light of the gun control measures that are already being proposed. That are quickly stealing the limelight from it. And the other shootings that are happening at the same time but that is the shooter and now now we're gonna get to biden promising to defend taiwan so what did he say what did he say how do, how do we get to this point uh well he was on a trip to japan he was meeting with prime minister of japan the yoshihide uh kishida Oh no, it's Fumio Kishida. I mixed him up with Yoshihida Suga, but the Prime Minister of Japan is Fumio Kishida. So he was there with Kishida, and this was during a press conference, and Biden was giving, he was answering questions, and one of the reporters came up and asked him sort of directly if he was willing to get involved to uh, militarily to defend Taiwan, to which he plainly said, yes, that's the commitment we made. And that's a quote. He even went on to say that our commitment was even stronger, uh, this quote, even stronger, end quote, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He also went on to say that any effort by China to use force against Taiwan would, quote, just not be appropriate, end quote. He also went on to say that, quote, oh, I do. <laughs> See, the, the, the actual things he's saying are separated throughout uh, the, him talking and answering questions. So this is sort of me trying to string it together in a way that's convenient for you, but I'm tripping over my quotes. But um, he says that any effort by China to use uh, force against Taiwan would, quote, just not be appropriate, end quote. And that such actions would, quote, dislocate the region, end quote. All right, so there. there we go. That, that makes strings it together nicely. Now, China's response to this was this, quote, China has no room for compromise or concessions on issues involving China's core interests, such as sovereignty and territorial integrity, end quote. 
China also stated that, quote, they will take firm action to safeguard its sovereignty and security interests, end quote. So the, that's sort of the, the context for the, the storm that's been sort of kicked up over him promising to defend Taiwan. As you have people who are, I wouldn't say sort of upset. It seems like the, the general consensus is that, oh, we should defend Taiwan. I think that that's a disaster waiting to happen and that the people advocating for it will live to regret it and all live to deal with the consequences of it, unfortunately for me. But oh, that's what I get for being the, the super-duper minority on issues. <laughs> but uh, you had him saying this, and then there's a storm that was kicked up from various contradictions that he said within his statement, because he also uh, promised that we would continue to adhere to the One China policy, which is sort of mutually exclusive to defending Taiwan? Uh, unless you want to openly say that you're intervening in internal Chinese affairs, because then the two can go hand in hand. But at that point, you're admitting to intervening in internal Chinese affairs uh, if you're going to go along with the One China policy. Me personally, yeah, Taiwan's a country, but that does not obligate me to defend them. Like, I can tell you that they're not one and the same with China, uh, the, the People's Republic of China, just based off the fact that they fought a civil war. China, The China we know today won the civil war, the People's Republic of China won the civil war against the Republic of China. The Republic of China we now know today as Taiwan. So they're clearly two different political entities just based off their histories, but me recognizing Taiwan as an independent country does not obligate me to defend them from China. I mean, heck, this is ultimately a, a civil war that was allowed to freeze for decades, and the two are technically still at war, just like North and South Korea. They're still at war. There was never a peace that was signed between them. They just stopped shooting at each other. And they could resume shooting at each other at any moment, should they choose to do so. But th them being an independent country doesn't obligate me to defend them. That's my view. You know, it's a nice and simple and coherent one. But what you'll get out of most people is, uh, you recognize Taiwan as independent, that automatically translates to you have to defend them, or you get weird excuses as to how we shouldn't intervene in Ukraine, but we have to intervene in Taiwan, because apparently they're just, they're so different, even though they're not, uh, just like Afghanistan. Uh, neither one of those countries we were defending were our allies, even the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, they, they weren't our ally, they were a puppet state that we installed after we invaded Afghanistan, who was at the time ruled by the Taliban. Hmm. But Ukraine, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, Taiwan, none of them have U.S. security guarantees. One of them had U.S. troops, but the other two, 
They didn't have U.S. troops. They have no U.S. security guarantees. They're not a part of any American alliances. And in Taiwan's case, it's even farther than that. We don't recognize their government. We have even less of a legitimate stake in defending them than we did in Ukraine. At the very least, we recognize the Ukrainian government, the, the one we installed after 2014. But then again, why wouldn't we? <laughs> we went through all the effort for, to, for the coup. Why wouldn't we uh, acknowledge the statehood and legitimacy of the Ukrainian government that we put in place? Even if they happen to be Nazis. But we don't recognize Taiwan. We recognize China. Precisely because we adhere to the one China policy. In, you know, in theory. It, so, yes, I, you can say that Taiwan's independent and not automatically defend them. But that's not what you'll get from most other people. Most other people have really convoluted worldviews. It's, it's strange and sometimes annoying to try to sift through for the purpose of, you know understanding what other people think because I have to deal with people disagreeing with my point of view on a daily basis <clears throat> I'm quite the minority on this but you'll have excuses made about how we don't need to defend Ukraine because that's not that's not the real fight the real fight is against China that's why we have to uh, that's why um, intervention in Ukraine is bad but intervention in Taiwan is good and it ultimately stems from the desire to keep intervention on the table because lots of people view intervention as a good thing and are they agree with it they just disagree on which countries specifically that we should be intervening in but to denounce an intervention in one place well you have, you have to be very careful with your words because the excuses are generally the same so if you denounce us intervening in one place, well, your words can very easily be used to against you for intervening in a different place. Uh, but but that's what you get with inconsistent worldviews. I like to keep mine consistent. Yeah, that's good uh, old isolationism. Works wonders for the mind when you don't have to do mental gymnastics about defending one country but not defending another. I say my hemisphere is my castle. And that's about it. Monroe Doctrine, oh, that's it. You're, you're in the other hemisphere? Oh, you're on the wrong side of the planet. Sucks to suck. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you, you get really weird. Uh, we should defend Taiwan, but we shouldn't defend Ukraine. If you don't get the we should just defend the whole world, you know. Very strange dichotomy of the various other perspectives you're going to get on this, assuming people talk about it at all. But, that's uh, sort of the larger issue of Taiwan and their, them being independent from China, carrying of an unwarranted amount of baggage to it. I'll just say that. But it, Biden didn't recognize Taiwan as being independent, even though he said he would defend them. He said he would go along with the one China policy. So you, you can see where the the confusion got kicked up immediately after he said this because his statement sort of partially contradicts itself as he said it. But the, the big thing here is that he said very clearly we would intervene militarily to, to defend Taiwan. 
But before I go any farther than that, before I say anything else uh, regarding regarding his, what he said here about defending Taiwan and what that would mean for us, uh, I'll, I'll say that I, I have to stress that this is Biden that we're talking about here. So all of this could be contradicted immediately in his next public appearance. When it, if he because he has a tendency of immediately backtracking on the things he says when they prove you know to not either not be what he meant or not be what he was supposed to say. But yeah, I imagine that that may happen the next time he has a public appearance. But even before that happens, it didn't take very long for the White House and staffers within it to immediately walk back his statements for him like they've been doing a lot since he came uh into office they immediately walked back his statements and said he didn't mean that he meant that we were in accordance with the one china policy well but the problem with that is he said so very clearly before the one china policy stuff yes we will intervene militarily to defend taiwan that's the commitment we made and he said that very clearly. He, he, he didn't stutter. <laughs> of all the times he w- didn't stutter or trip over his words, that was one. Which makes it very difficult for people to understand what in tar nation are we dealing with? Are we defending Taiwan or is it the one China policy? Am I to trust this man the, who's supposed to be our commander-in-chief? Or am I going to trust the White House? <laughs> or, or maybe I should wait for the Pentagon to give a press statement. May- Maybe the FBI will help me out on this one. <laughs> maybe I should go listen to some Russian disinformation. Maybe maybe they'll tell me the truth in the expectation that I'll think they're lying. <laughs> but honestly, it, it's very easy to see where this storm of confusion got kicked up from. Like, what are we supposed to believe? Because... Either one, both ones have consequences and implications, um, given the, the baggage that comes with them. Again, my worldview is very simple and consistent. We can recognize Taiwan as being independent, so that completely violating the one China policy, just shattering it. We have the political and economic weight to do so. It's not, it's not like China's going to stop doing trade with us for breaking that policy completely because we're a peer power to them. Unfortunately, it's militarily rather than, you know, economically, which would be better for us in the long term. But we're a peer power to China. We can we can say shit like that and get away with it. But at the same time, we don't have to equate Taiwanese independence to we have to defend them. See, that that's the interventionist worldview. It's a very convoluted one that gets us into messes that we really don't need to be in. But but a lot of people don't really see through that baggage. They take the baggage for what it is. And they view the two as being mutually uh, exclusive. Either Taiwan is independent and we have to defend them. Or it's the one China policy and we're abandoning Taiwan to uh, Chinese authoritarianism and dictatorship. Now, granted, none of that has anything to do with us, but that's what people believe. So, when you hear him make a statement like that, it becomes very understandable why people would be confused, given all the baggage that comes with those two 
seemingly inconsistent and incompatible policy positions. But the the confusion aside uh, that has been kicked up over this and the consequences it could potentially have on U.S. foreign policy, this is a this is a disaster waiting to happen. It really is. I guess sort of in a in sort of a small scale sense that press conference has inadvertently now that I'm thinking about it demonstrated exactly the problem with strategic ambiguity which is sort of the policy we've been pursuing with regards to Taiwan for a while where we don't quite where we're vague on where exactly we stand and we're we don't quite tell you what we're going to do if this happens, but we're, it's implied that we're going to do this, but we won't say exactly what that is. So no one knows what exactly they're going to get from the United States if Taiwan is attacked by China. And so it was supposed to serve a dual purpose of keeping China at bay because they don't know what they're going to get and keeping Taiwan from acting an ass, believing that they had us in their corner and getting us into a war with China. It's so strange how that was supposed to keep us out of war with China. Uh, but now we're, we're, we're desperately trying to get into a war with China. It's, I'll digress on that. But strategic ambiguity is trash because no one knows exactly where you stand. And where you can work that to your advantage in the short term, it becomes a problem in the long term when people just go, well... We can us uh, we'll just make our own assumption about what they're gonna do and plan around that, and well, you now you've lost any clarity. Now you have to clarify. You've you've uh, enabled the opposition to force the issue, because when China invades Taiwan, there's no more room for strategic ambiguity, because <laughs> at that point your actions will s- say everything. Either you come in for Taiwan or you don't, in which case you, you've you either stepped in to help them or you've abandoned them. So when Taiwan gets abandoned, strategic uh, ambiguity dies on that day in that moment. But even right now, it's confusing and convoluted. And going back to that press conference that Biden gave, where he pushed what are given the context and the baggage of the two positions... Uh, Taiwan being independent, meaning we have to defend them, and the one China policy, meaning you de- you abandon Taiwan. Him pushing both of those at the same time is a an inadvertently a very excellent example of the sort of the the mess that strategic ambiguity creates for you. No one knows where this man stands right now, and it's it's so strange. Like, I I didn't even think of this when I was writing my notes, but that is such a great example of what strategic ambiguity gets you. He, oh oh my goodness, he just gave us all a a masterclass in strategic ambiguity, and I, I, let me stop saying that, I'm getting tired of saying it, but I don't, I don't like it, I don't like it. I think we should be very clear about where we stand, but for the opposite reasons that a lot of other people who don't like ambiguity of strategy uh would like 
I say we should be very clear that we're not going to defend Taiwan so that everyone in America knows, oh, okay, if that guy over there gets invaded, we're not just going to get dragged off to war for some country we don't know about. And so that said country knows that they need to be on their ass, their own ass, about defending themselves because they know for certain we're not going to defend them. They can start, okay, well, we have this country and this country in our neighborhood. Maybe we should make an alliance, you know, and the countries around them will know, hey, this country is in danger. The United States isn't going to defend them and they're looking for an alliance with us. Well, maybe we should pitch in so that the region is secure. Let them handle it and let them make informed decisions. You, you can't make informed decisions without knowing what you're going to get. Strategic ambiguity screws everyone over, ourselves included. Uh, again, we don't know if we're going to go to war or not because we don't even know what our own stance is on Ukraine. Oh, nice. Well, we know what our stance is on Ukraine. I meant to say Taiwan. We don't know what our stance is on Taiwan. So that's the problem with strategic ambiguity. And I guess this press conference has really laid it bare in an, a way that you could not have planned for. You really couldn't have. But let, let, let's say that we do go. Because lots of people believe defending Taiwan is an actual U.S. interest. I don't. Uh, you, my lovely listeners, know well by now that I would have no problem abandoning damn near every alliance we have around the world with the exception of South America and Latin America and Canada. Because those are places that matter to the United States infin infinitely more than anywhere else. Because we live here. But let's... Many people believe that defending Taiwan is actually a U.S. interest. Because microchips, even though them being d invaded and us potentially losing access to microchips is really, to me, a great argument for domestic production. So we aren't vulnerable to other people going to war, you know, but that that's just an America first policy for you, you know, an actual America first policy, not a Taiwan first policy. But and and that's aside from the fact that. China taking Taiwan will either destroy the chip manufacturers in the process or they'll just we'll just be getting our chips from China now. China's not going to embargo us. If China wanted to destroy the US economy, they wouldn't need to invade Taiwan and cut us off from their chips. Right? They make everything we own. <laughs> they make everything. Your light bulbs, they own it. Your, your lamps, they own it. Your washing machine, they own it. Your fan that you bought on Amazon, they own it. They, they, they own so much. If they wanted to screw us over, your computer screens, they own it. Embargoed. Embargoed. Your forks, your silverware, made in China, made in China. Embargoed. You don't get that anymore. Oh, that, oh that's nice. Uh, The clothes on your back, made in China, embargoed. Society would come to a halt. Society would come to a screeching halt if we can't even buy our clothes because they got embargoed from us by China. We get our toilet paper. We, we don't even make enough toilet paper for ourselves. It's made in China. 
You embargo the toilet paper and see what happens. Uh, the oh, that that just be filthy. That just be nasty. I don't even want to think about that. But if China wanted to kill the U.S. economy, they don't need to take Taiwan first to do it. Heck, why would they wait until after they started the war to kill the U.S. economy? They would do that shit early to guarantee that we weren't going to have the strength necessary to intervene. If They would cripple us first and then invade Taiwan. Why would they invade Taiwan, wait for us to show up, and then cripple our economy? That. Because economic warfare takes time to work. They wouldn't do that. They would do it early with any one of the things that I mentioned. They, uh, your, the cups and bowls that you have in your kitchen, made in China. Like, so much of the things we have is made in China. Uh, I can't even name them all off to you. Like, I can look around in my room. The, the folders, your binders, made in China. Your pencils. Maybe they're made in the United States, but a lot of them are made in China. Your pens made in China. The, the, it's just so much. If they wanted to kill the U.S. economy, they don't need Taiwan's chips to do that. Like, all the excuses given as to why we have to defend Taiwan are really invalid when you think about the broader economics involved in this. So, so you can you can tell I've spent a whole lot of time really thinking over the the other side of people's arguments about Taiwan, the, the more popular arguments, I should say, and I've ended up solidifying my stance against it. But even if we do go, because many believe it's a U.S. interest, what are we going to get if we win? What do we get? Like, honestly, what do we, the United States, gain from winning a war with Taiwan? What would it cost? And those are some serious questions that need to be answered before we go into this war. Because people aren't going to be happy with the answers when they get them. I mean, people are complaining now, uh, three months too late, uh, about the money and aid we're giving to Ukraine. And they use the fact that we're in a crisis right now to justify not giving that aid. Because, again, lots of people are in favor of intervening uh, some aid to Ukraine, but not direct intervention, you know, that type of stuff. People are upset with the aid we're giving them all, the Ukrainians. How much money and aid do you suspect will be given to Taiwan when they get invaded? It's got to be at least as much if the Ukraine, yeah, the Ukraine, if the conflict lasts long enough for us to get it to Taiwan... You're talking at least another ten billion going to Taiwan before we get a, a fat forty billion dollar package going to them too. So that's another fifty something billion going to another country. And how will the answers to those questions I asked before, the what do we get, and what will it cost? How will the answers to those questions appear to Americans, when we lose? Will it be worth it? Well, is that how we're going to view it? Because I can bet it won't be. Or instead, will Taiwan be yet another war we look back on and say, we should never have been there? Only time will tell. But that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. 
I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing right before our very eyes, and we don't even realize it, even when we're looking at it. But at the very least, we'll all have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.